been with us. Uh, we are in Romans uh, chapter 6. And I'm going to read our passage this morning. Um, we're going to spend the bulk of our time, if not all of our time, on verse 12. But I, I want to start in verse 1 and to, to work us through and to get there so that we, um, we know where we are. Because uh, in, in, in my estimation, something big happens in our text this morning, okay? So, so, so bear with me. Um, j- just a little bit of uh, background here. Um, if you weren't here with us two weeks ago, is that you know in, in chapter five, um, Paul was was laying out the benefits uh, of of our justification, and and so as he's moved through the benefits of our justification, and that is. Uh, and, and kids, I'm going to define some things because I want you to be able to track with me. Because one of the important things about having our kids in here is that if our kids will learn this morning how to fight sin the proper way, it will save them a lifetime of hardships and troubles. And so I want our kids tuned in and listening. And so I want to define some things. And so what the Bible says, justification or being made right uh, with God, that God did this, that we were enemies of God. And yet God loved us because of his love for us, made us alive together with him. And so because of that, we have all these benefits and these gifts uh, that's of our justification. And so if you think about it, what might go on in someone's head as they are thinking about that they have been justified by the grace alone by God's free gift alone, through faith alone, one of the things that you might come to the conclusion of is, okay, well, God has saved me. I am right with him. Therefore, I can just go on sinning. And so Paul answers this question. And so that's the question that is asked in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so what Paul is telling us here is that if you are in Christ, and he's going to explain this out further, then you have died to sin. And so if you have died to sin, how can you continue to live in it? Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through the baptism into death so that here's the purpose. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And what Paul is telling us here is that if we have been if we have become a Christian, if we have put our faith in Christ, not only did we die with him, meaning that our sins are forgiven, but we've also been raised with him in this mighty union with him so that there's a purpose here so that we may walk in the newness of life so that we may live in a certain way with a certain purpose. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self, our old self, the one in Adam was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, our body of sin might be done away with so that we're no longer 
to be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is the turning point. Therefore, based on all that you have just heard, based on your position in your union in Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Now, I find this amazing this morning. Paul, as he is writing this letter to the church at Rome, one of the reasons he's writing this letter, he's writing this letter so that he can gain um, some support for them so that he can take the gospel to Spain. And it's important that he lays out what he believes to be the gospel in this letter so that the Roman church can see it and see if they want to support him. And what's amazing to me, what's amazing to me as Paul is writing this letter, that here he, he turns from this informational laying out of the gospel, this great doctrinal truth. And we get the first imperative. Kids, we get the first command in the Bible, not in the Bible, in the book of Romans. And Paul was careful not to lay this command anywhere else, but only after he had explained to us what the gospel really is and what justification by faith really is. Because if he came in with this command somewhere else, we may misunderstand it. And so only after he talks about we are only made right with God by grace through faith, he gives us this command. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And, and as we read the word, one of the things that you need to know as we read the word and as Paul was writing this, as he was writing this command to the church at Rome, he's doing it with all of his apostolic authority. And in doing that, and, and through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, we can take these words as if they are coming from Jesus Christ himself. And so I want this to land heavy on you this morning because Paul and Jesus would have us to hear this command loudly and soberly as the people of God. And as the people of God, Christ wants us to hear, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. We must take our sin seriously. And so one of the things that as we're beginning to talk about our sin, my sin, your sin this morning, I want to prep you just a little bit. And one of the things I don't want you to do this morning is to think about somebody else's sin. Any temptation you have this morning as I am speaking or as I am reading to think about your spouse's sin, your kid's sin, your neighbor's sin, or somebody who may need to hear this message, I want you to zero in on you. 
Notice as Paul is writing this, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's not saying here, hey, don't let sin reign in your neighbor's body. So I I hope and pray this morning that we take this and we apply it to us and we don't sit this morning thinking about other people, but we let it sink in. I pray this morning through the Spirit's help that that even this morning we might be convicted of, of sin in our life. And I also pray that if the Spirit is at work this morning where the Spirit convicts of sin, the Spirit leads us to freedom. And that's what we're going to understand from this morning is that it is not the Spirit's work to convict, to make you a guilty downtrodden, beat up Christian. That is not what God requires of us. The Spirit's work in convicting you and me of sin this morning is to free you from the bondage of sin so that, like in verse 4, we can walk in the newness of life in which we were called to. And so I pray that this happens in us this morning. And that's the vision that I want you to to have and what I want you to see this morning. You know, as we sang, I was just overwhelmed by the greatness of our salvation. That, That Jesus, that God would send his son to die for you and for me. So unworthy. But I think too oftentimes as Christians, we stop there and we, we, we have this idea that Jesus died for our sins, past, present and future. And so we do kind of put it on cruise control and we forget what Paul is really telling us this morning. And what we're told all throughout the New Testament is that if you are a Christian, you have a job to do. And the job that you are to do is to walk in the newness of life, as it says in verse 4. Another way to say this is that you and I exist. We were saved for a purpose. You and I exist to glorify God. And the way that we do that is in this sinful, fallen world as Christians, we should be becoming more and more like God so that the world around us, around us when they see us, they begin to see Him. And His glory through our lives. And so if we think about what our purpose is and what our mission is, then how in the world can we even have the audacity to think that we were put here to be saved, to sit and just wait to go to heaven? It's not what we were created for. It's not what we were created for. Tom Schreiner One of my New Testament professors uh, is fond of saying that the the key for us in the Christian life, in walking in Christian life, is that we are to become who we are becoming. And we're going to unfold this in a little bit, but we are to become who we are becoming. So I want to, here's kind of an outline of this morning. I want to look at this command in verse 12. I'm going to show you kind of four really important things out of this verse. Um, I know. I was going to do three verses and got bogged down again. Um, I'm going to show you four things. And then I want to I, I nestle up 
close to you and hopefully help give you some extremely practical um, bits of advice on, on how to fight sin. So let's dig in. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So the first key that I want you to see out of this text is, is, is I don't see how we can miss this in this wording where Paul says, you do not let. And what I want to lay out, a, found, a huge foundational things that I think many Christians get wrong is that the Bible, God, is calling us to be active participants in fighting sin. This is you and me. This is us doing something. We have a role. We have a responsibility in fighting sin in our life. And people do this in many different ways, the opposite of this. But I'm just going to generically say, you know, what the Bible is not calling us to do is to sit around, to wait, to hold ourselves up in our rooms and wait for our sin to be magically overcome. The Bible calls us to action here. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. The Bible also doesn't call us in fighting sin to let go and to let God. We've all heard this, right? And there are contexts, if we define that clearly, that that's an okay statement to make. But in fighting sin, the Bible does not call us to just let go and let God. The Bible calls us to gird ourselves and to fight, to be active, not passive. In fact, I will say there is no place in fighting sin for passive Christians. And I know that's a little bit of a shocking statement. There's no place for passivity in fighting sin. If you are passive in your fight over sin, you will be overcome. You cannot be passive. The Bible calls us to action. When we're passive, things creep into our lives like this. Guilt. Shame. Depression. Anxiety. If we are passive and we've got sin going on in our lives, this is just the devil's playground. And we are not called to be passive. Instead, Instead, we are called, we are called to gird ourselves up and to fight. Another place where we see this is in Philippians chapter 2. And you don't have to turn there. These verses will be familiar to you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice this is a statement of you work out your salvation with fear and trembling for. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the reason the reason that we can fight sin. Now get this. This is huge. The only sin that you can overcome as a Christian is forgiven sin. So what the Bible is calling us to in our fight for sin, it's calling us not to let a defeated foe defeat us. 
this gives us, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, that we're fighting from a place of, of victory. We're not fighting from a place of uh, loss and, and defeat. But in this battle, we must fight. We must fight against this defeated sin. So it is a God-enabled, victorious fight, but it is a fight. Am I clear on that? I want to say that again. This is a God-enabled, a God-powered, victorious fight, but it is a fight. And if we miss this first statement, we will be defeated in our Christian walk. The second thing I want you to see. The second thing that I want you to see in this verse. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign. Um, and, and the key here that I want to bring out. And where I want to encourage us is that I want us to view sin as sin. Now, there, there's a temptation here and it happened in my mind. It has happened to my mind over in my mind over years, and so I'm going to assume it happens in your mind as well, is that sometimes I think we overemphasize the word reign here. And I think we do it as a means of justifying our sin. So, you know, we may tell some white lies every now and then, or we may um, not report everything that we need to report on our taxes, or, you know, we may do some little small sins, but how we justify that sometimes, well, that doesn't reign in me. Sin reigning in you is the, are the big sins. That's for the people that are struggling with pornography or struggling with, with other uh, uh, type of addictive behaviors. And what I'm saying and what the Bible is telling us, I could bring out the list of sins in the New Testament and it's going to get all of us. Remember in Romans Chapter one, where it's going through those lists of sins and it's these horrific sins. And all of a sudden it says disobedience to parents or any other sin that you may think of. It's basically, that's the Lewis translation. So let's not overemphasize the whole idea of sin. Let's view sin as sin. And, and what is sin? Sin is the opposite of God's holiness. Sin is the opposite of God's character. And so anything that is opposing or opposite to who God is and what his character is, as he has revealed himself in his word, is sin. And so that is a broad blanket statement. And we are to not let any of that reign in our lives. And so how do you view sin? I think many of us, all of us at one time or the other, get caught into saying things like, you know, my sin is, is not that bad. Or, everybody sins. The call in this verse is to alleviate and to eliminate any temptation in us to justify our sin. Or to minimize our sin. And rather, rather to view sin as sin and therefore take up and to fight against it. In fact, Paul, you know, if you were here two weeks ago, um, verses 1 through 11, he tells us that if there is sin in our life, it's one of two issues. One is that we're not a Christian. Or number two, we've forgotten who we are. Isn't that the answer that Paul gives? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. That's not who you are. 
is the summary of those verses. You are a new person. So if we view sin as God views sin, if I view my sin as God views my sin, I'm not comfortable with it and I'm not okay with it. And and I made the statement two weeks ago when looking at this question that it's absurd that this question would even be entertained should we continue in sin. That's an absurd question because we should hate sin so much that we shouldn't be trying to find a way to justify it or to continue in it. And that's the view that we need to have as believers who are becoming more and more like Christ is that we need to view our sin as he views it. We need to hate it because he hates it. And so whether it's pornography or white lies. We hate it. Whether it's a haughty attitude as uh, our 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 family as, as we're going through the book of Proverbs and we talked about what haughty eyes meant, a self-centered attitude. Or a nasty temper. Whether it's slothfulness, not acting when we need to act and uh, uh, being slothful and not taking our responsibilities serious like we need to. Or whether it's being so much of a busybody that we, we, we totally miss what God has for us. It's sin. Whether it's being disobedient to your parents, kids. Or whether it's dads, us provoking our kids to anger. It's sin. And we need to be about Killing it and fighting it. All of this, when sin is is in us and when we see sin in our lives, as a believer, one of the things that we've got to take our minds to is that the presence of a sin is a signpost to a deeper soul issue. And we're going to we're going to end with talking about that a little more. But that's why this sin thing is so important. These little acts of sins just don't pop up and occur When these little acts of sin pop up and occur, it shows us that there's something not right down deep within us that we need to get to the bottom of and help root out. And the key here is this. If you don't view your sin as sin, if you justify it and if you minimize it, you will never have victory over sin in your life. It will always have victory over you. Now, let's keep going. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now, why in the world, why in the world would Paul qualify bodies here? You know, I mean, couldn't have Paul have just said, hey, don't let sin reign in your bodies. And so we have to ask this question. Why did Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say, don't let sin reign? Reign in your mortal bodies. And the reason he said this is that we will struggle with sin and the temptation to sin until we have immortal bodies. Just in case you've forgotten or hadn't read that part of the scripture later, there will be a lately, not later, (laughs) lately, there will be a day if you are a believer when we will get new resurrected bodies and one of those things that those bodies will be freed from is sin. 
What Paul is telling us here is that while you are in these mortal bodies, you will struggle and fight against sin. Now, let's just also take some other clues from the text. The very fact that Paul gives us an option or a statement, don't let sin reign, means that Paul knows that there's going to be a fight and a struggle against sin. Two weeks ago, when we looked at these verses, when we looked in verse 8, we have another clue here. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. There's a future tense there. In the future, we shall live with him with new resurrected bodies when we are completely glorified and our struggle with sin will be completely over. And so there is a future aspect to that. But what Paul is telling us here, and here's what we cannot miss on, is that now, now, being alive to God does not mean that we are what we will be, but it does mean that we have the power to become who we're becoming. Being alive to God doesn't mean that we are who we will be, but it does mean that we have the power to become what we're becoming and that we should be in a process of constantly fighting sin. That while we're in these bodies, we'll be fighting sin. And so here's a slogan that I uh, came up with that I hope is helpful um, and is packed with some things that I think we need to qualify a little bit. And you may come up later and say, hey, this is not helpful and I'm open to that. But here's what I think the big idea is here. If you are a Christian, you will be fighting forgiven sin and winning until you get your new bodies. Let me say that again. Because I want you to understand this. If you are a Christian, you will be fighting forgiven sin and winning until you get your new bodies. Does that make sense? That as Christians, in these mortal bodies, what these verses are telling us is that you will constantly be fighting forgiven sin. And not only that, as a Christian, and there are so many other texts and we could spend this whole day and I almost did on what sanctification means and what it is and what it does. But, but essentially, when you read the whole text of Scripture, what we see is that the Christian is progressing over time, that we are being sanctified, we're being made more like God over time. And so the key in this battle and in this, this process of sanctification is that not only will we be fighting forgiven sin, but we will be winning. But we'll be fighting until the day we die. So don't lose heart. <laughs> Gird up and fight. That is what we are called and commanded to do. So in other words, we're not saying, and the Bible is not telling us that in this lifetime that we'll be sinless. It's telling us that we'll always have a fight. But, but we will win. And just to, you know, I, I used to do this on a dry erase board uh, in my office and uh, would spend a lot of time in counseling settings talking about this sort of thing. And, you know, one of the things that Christians we get bogged down and beat ourselves up over is that we think this process of sanctification, of becoming 
holy is this direct line correlation, you know, that every day is is better than the day before. And in really, so I would I would take this line and I would draw it and I would say this is the worst idea of sanctification. This is the worst idea of fighting sin that you can have in your mind. The reality of Christian life is it looks like this. And I would draw circles. Of this battle and this victory, but in the trajectory of those circles, we're, we're moving, we're moving and we're becoming more like him and we're we're. Through day by day, month by month, battle by battle, we're becoming more and we're turning more of who into more of who he has created us to be. So in our mortal bodies, we'll be fighting sins. The last thing that I want us to see from this text. Is this, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. And, and the key here is that while we are in these mortal bodies, that sins and lusts will harass us, will harass us until the day we die, but you do not have to obey the sins and the lusts. And oh, if you would just walk away from here just believing this, Notice the words here, obey. You know, it reminds me of the Bob Dylan song. You know, you oh, now I've forgotten it. That's why I need to write that. You got to serve somebody. Thank you. Hippie. No, just kidding. Um, you got to serve somebody. You, you, that we're always obeying something. There's no neutrality there. We're always either obeying God and his word and the spirit within us, or we're obeying the lusts of the flesh. And what the scripture is telling us here is that as a Christian, you do not have to obey the lust of the flesh. Being dead to sin and alive to God mean one means that one correctly obeys God. As we wait, we are still harassed by evil desires. And I love this quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther says this, holy people still have evil lusts that they do not follow. I love that. Holy people still have evil lusts that they do not follow. Now, here we're aided by some other great scriptures that you all know. And so I will let you all help me with one of them. And then I want to read uh, a portion of scripture in 1 Corinthians. But in James 4, 7 Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will. Anywhere in that verse does it say he might flee? No, it says submit to God. Obey God, submit to his word, place yourself under God, and then you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to turn there, this would be a good one to, to turn to. And I'm going to read verses uh, 6 through 13. Because I want, you to, I want you to see some things in here. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and twenty three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us try, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. Grumbling here. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Here's the verse. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as it is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And what has to happen, brother and sister, is that in the moment of temptation, we have to believe this word. That God is able and that he has provided and is our responsibility to take him up on it. To resist. To know that there is no temptation too great. Now, let us take some time here and and just get real practical. I hope it's been practical already, but I want to even dive deeper and, and be more practical and, and kind of sit down beside you and as I had to do with myself. And this is where these practical things come from as I examine my own life and think about through my own struggles and in my own heart and in my own mind. And so I, I just want to give you four things here. The first thing is, is this. We need the will and resolve to fight sin. And this is what gets so convoluted in my mind at times. As a Christian, what what do you desire? Do you desire holiness? Do you desire righteousness? Or do you desire the things of the world? Do you desire the... The pleasures and the things and the false hopes that the world offers. Or do we desire holiness? God. I think there are too many people and too many Christians that are entranced with the pleasures of this world. And so they have no desire to fight. Our desire to fight is fueled by our satisfaction in God. And let's not forget this, brother and sister, because if we don't understand this, we will have no desire to fight sin. But if our desire, if we are overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness of God, and we see him for who he is, and then we trust him and the promises that he has given us, then our desire will be to do the very things that he calls us to do, because we will be submitting to our own good. Because he is good and he is faithful. And so we've got to have this desire within us or else we won't fight. If we get this backwards. If we think that we are fighting here so that God may like us. If we're fighting here so that we may gain favor in him. Then we are a defeated foe. 
But if we are fighting because we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good and he is worthy and he is our all in all, he is our prize, he is our treasure. It's where our heart beats, it's where our souls desire to go, then we will have the correct desire to fight because we will be fighting for the best and for joy and for pleasure. You see, in our fight against sin, we're not giving anything up. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with pornography, giving up pornography is not giving anything up. It's gaining. And unless we understand that, unless we understand that, this fight will be in vain because we're too entrenched in the thing that we're fighting against. So I'm asking you to choose an abundant life, one of righteousness and holiness and God. The second thing, and I've mentioned this throughout, but I, I, we need to understand this and we need to stand on this, is that as we're fighting sin, we're fighting from a position of victory. Look at verse 14 for a minute. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, what's interesting is that it it really kind of takes a little bit of an in-depth reading of this to understand what Paul is saying here. When Paul is saying you're not under law, he's telling us we're not under the Mosaic law, we're under grace. And the wording that he uses here in the text is he's talking about periods of time. And so when Paul is saying that that sin will not be master over you, what he's saying is, is that because of Jesus, because he's writing this book, he's writing on this side of the cross, Because of the cross, your sin has been defeated. Before, it is your sin will be defeated. Sin has been defeated. Walk in the newness of life. Later on in this letter, we're going to hear about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role and, and the gift to us in this. But suffice to say right now that we are living in a time and age where our sin was nailed to Jesus and it was buried with him. And that what rose from that is we rose with him up from that as verses one through eleven has told us. And so sin no longer has mastery over us and we must fight from a position of victory. And what that looks like is this. You've got to talk. You've got to talk to those lusts. And you've got to talk to that sin in your life. And you've got to remind yourself of the promises of God. And so when that temptation comes, we have to say, you have no power over me. Do you know who I am? I am a child of God. I am forgiven. I am loved. And this sin has been killed. I do not have to submit to it. That power has been broken. Fight is over. So you say to the tempter, you don't own me. I'm his. I'm forgiven. And I am loved. And and I don't know about you, but I, you know, I know I say this quite often about preaching to ourselves and talking to ourselves. But um, I think you're weird if you don't. And, And, you know, I'm that weird guy that if you were with me all day long. Literally, I employ this. There are times I will be in my truck or running or doing something 
and a temptation will come over me and I out loud say these type of things. I out loud say that is not who I am. I'll give you a dumb example, but I think it's important. I was getting out of my truck and this is a common temptation I have. Uh, I was getting out of my truck and uh, uh, much to some of you type A'ers uh, chagrin, my my truck is not the uh, neatest, tidiest place around. So sometimes when I get out of my truck, little papers will fall out. The other day it was a little straw paper from somewhere falls out. And as I'm getting a little bit older, you know, bending over and picking up things is not the first, you know, thought that I have. And then these thoughts start coming. So the paper falls out on the ground and the thoughts start coming. You know, nobody will know this. You know, part of Russ and them's rent over there is they hire these little trucks to come along and they clean up this parking lot every now and then. And I just had to fight that urge and temptation to just leave that litter on the ground and take myself to, you know, that God has called us to be stewards and good stewards of the earth and took myself. And you're like, Lewis, you're so weird. No, you've got to fight. We can't just let it go. We've got to fight. It's who we are. It's who we are. So in that moment, I had a choice. Do I believe that God has called me to be a steward of the earth, or am I just going to go on? And I wasn't willing, thankfully this is one of the times that there was victory. I wasn't willing, and part of it is because I'm studying this, I wasn't willing to minimize or justify my sin. I viewed it as, no, 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 Lewis, this is a level at which we have to be fighting our sin. Thirdly, and this is the one that I think is probably more difficult um, and takes some creativity. Uh, I, I think it takes um, I think it takes some time. Um, this is why I think discipleship is so important. Um, but we've got to get to the root of our sin. We've got to get to the root of our sin. You know, I, I think sometimes we're lazy in our fight against sin and we just take it at surface level. Let me give you some example. And this isn't these aren't always the case. OK, but let, let me just give you two or three examples of what I mean by getting to the root of the sin. So this never happens with Casey or I, but I've heard that some of you all sometimes are impatient with your kids. So there's a temptation there to just deal with. Yeah, I shouldn't be impatient with my kids. Yeah, I know, God. So I'll stop being impatient with kids. What's more important. Is to begin and this is what I want you to do is to begin to ask the question, why am I impatient with my kids? We've got to get to the root of this stuff or else we're just chopping off the head of a weed that's going to come right back up. I'm wanting us to get in and get those roots and get it out of there. So why am I impatient with kids? I'll give you one. I'll give you me. The reason I'm impatient with my kids is because I'm self-centered. Right? If I'm brushing off my kids or being, you know, impatient with them, most of the time in Lewis's life, the root of that is my self-centeredness. It doesn't want to be bothered or... Feels like I deserve to be able to sit down at the end of the day or whatever that may be. 
It's self-centeredness. And we've got to root that out. We can't just stay at the surface. Let me give you another one. And I'm doing there's a lot of parenting stuff here today because it's my world. What about provoking your kids to anger? Now, I think this one's probably on my brain because um, I have spent a lot of time over the past couple of months at the baseball field. And if you want to see a good example of provoking your children to anger, go to the baseball field. And what you see is us dads who are doing what we do with our kids and really getting onto them because they're not getting the glove all the way to the ground or they're not watching the ball all the way to the bat or whatever. And we're and we're but it's not just an instructive kind. Hey, buddy, if you want to hit the ball, watch the ball, hit the bat. You know, it's intense. And so where does that come from? Where does that come from? Because at five and six. A lot of times these kids are happy enough not to hit the ball. They just want to wear the uniform. Now, I think there's a good godly response to teaching these kids and teaching them things. That's not where I'm going. I'm not promoting a a baseball league where you just there's just wild. No, there's a lot of great things to be learned. But what I'm telling you is when you see the anger and when you see it get to that level where you're provoking your kids to anger or where kids are being provoked to anger, it all I, I, I it almost always comes from insecurity. What will others think about me if my kid doesn't get the ground ball. That's insecurity. What will kids think about me or my family if my child does not make all A's? Insecurity. And unless we get to the root of that insecurity, then the best we're ever going to get is, okay, I'm going to the ball field tomorrow and I'm going to really try to keep my mouth shut. That doesn't work too well because we're just cutting the head off that weed and it grows back. The next one that I came up with, and this again is one that that I've struggled with in my life, is anxiety. And the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, right? And so, and I've talked about this before. This is why I wanted to choose this one because I want you to hear it over and over and over again because it helps me. Is so what we are to do then is is say, OK, anxiety is a friend, a, a, a sin. Don't be anxious. 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 No, we've got to go to the root. Why am I anxious? And now this one, I will give a universal always underneath all anxiety. Is. Is the is is our thought. That God doesn't know what he's doing. God is not in control. Therefore, I need to worry about this. And if we never get to that level in fighting sin, all we're doing is chopping the head off that weed and it's going to spring right back up. The very next time the next thing comes that you don't think God can control, that anxiety will come right back. So... We've got to get to the root of this. And, and so, so one way to do this is to ask the question, why? Another way to, get, to help us get to the root of this is to let someone else into our life. This is the scary one. 
let someone else examine our lives. It's very often that other people see us more clearly than we see ourselves. It's very often that that people outside of us can ask us questions or can 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 just talk to us a little bit about things we've never thought about. Because many of you, if you would have thought about them, you would have corrected them. And so I think it's helpful to let other people in. And when I say let them in, you've got to let them really in. Now, let me just give a word of practical advice on this. Don't just pick someone out in the service today to let in. Right? Because the problem is, is that if you're not careful, you could pick out the gossip. And the next thing you know, everything you tell them is just... Be wise. Find someone you think is wise. Find someone you think... That, that will care about you and pray with you and let them in and ask them questions. Why do you think that I continue to struggle with this? And why do you think that I continue to, to do this? Two more things here. Two more things. One is, the, another one is this. Pray, pray, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what's behind this sin. You'd be amazed that if you really begin to pray over your sin patterns of, of God, why, why so often am I just always provoking my, you know, why does this happen in my life? God, what's going on that if you are constantly in prayer about that, that God will reveal this stuff to you, that God will bring this to you. Uh, and so I think it's vital that we pray. Um, and, and the last one is, is this, and this is just another word of practical advice. Focus on the sin and not on other people's behaviors. Uh, and, and what I mean by this is that I think that so often, you know, minimizing and justifying our sin comes so natural to us that so if so if uh, uh, let's, so if, if Aaron after church comes up and punches me in the nose and I just punch him back. Unprovoked, Right. You know, the temptation I'm going to have is to spend most of my time talking about. You know, well, he punched me in the nose. How would other people react if they were punched in the nose? Why did he punch me in the nose and this sort of thing? And you know what I won't spend time thinking about? Why did I respond in that way? Why am I responding in this way? And so when I say that to, to, to think about your own sin, I think it's so vitally important that we we push out of our minds, you know, what other people or, 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 you know, things that we may look at as causality of the sin, we push that out and we just begin to pray and to focus and to think about our sin. And we own it and we give it to God. Which leads us to our fourth thing here in our fight for sin. We sh- as we fight sin, we should be always rejoicing. This is so missed in Christian circles that as we're doing all of this stuff that we're always rejoicing. Now, why would we be as Christians always rejoicing as we're looking and dealing with this stuff? It's been forgiven. Right. We believe that. And so when we are examining our sin, there's a temptation for it to take us to this place where we realize how 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 dirty and how rotten we are. And we've got to cover that by saying, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love, loved me and he died for that sin. So that one of the things I'm very, very concerned about when we talk about fighting sin is that we don't do it from a place of guilt and shame and condemnation, because as these verses have told us in Romans, that's not who you are. And this is hard for some of us because we don't practice fighting our sin this way, but we've got to practice fighting our sin this way. And and a good clue for Lewis that he is doing this well is that temptation comes up or sin comes up. I begin to struggle. I begin to fight. I begin to lean in and do this. And I immediately take it to the cross. I immediately realize it's forgiven. But it also stays in my brain so that as I'm thinking about this, I can rightfully look deep down within my soul and say, okay, where does this come from, God? I'm your child. I'm forgiven. I'm loved by you. And I am just amazed by your love. And I don't want this sin to... I don't want this pattern to exist here anymore. So let's do it as we're rejoicing. Which, by the way, is a command in the Bible. Did you know that? Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice. Sometimes? No, at all times. And so we rejoice. Now, I'm going to end by just saying this. We will never be as a church, who we were made to be unless we get on with fighting sin. That if we don't get on with fighting sin, Satan's goal in the life of a Christian is to lull you to ineffectiveness. And he does this in many ways, but three ways is, number one, being complacent with where you are, stuck in your sin patterns as a believer. Number two, convincing you that you're powerless over your sin. And number three, being ignorant of your sin and how deep that that flows. Now, what I at, at the very end, as I pray for us as we go, one of the things that I do not want you to hear from me is this. Sometimes when we preach about sin or we teach about sin, we, get, we portray this thing that it's that easy. And I'm very aware that there are some struggles that some of you have um, that not only involve just behavioral patterns, but involve things going on within our brains. And that when sin affected us, it has affected all of us. And so I understand that there are some things that we fight with as Christians that are um, complicated. And my encouragement to you is that this is where you are, that this be a word of encouragement, that we're going we're gonna to fight that. We're not going to be passive. We're going to fight it. But we know that we may be in for a long journey. But you know what? The person next to you is in for a long journey as well. The person next to you's journey may switch from different things. But all of us won't be what we will be until we get to heaven. But my encouragement to you is that we fight. That we fight. And that as we fight, we fight it the way that God would have us do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I am so thankful for your word. I am so thankful for the commands in your word. God, I want Single Mountain Bible Church to reflect you as clearly as we possible, possibly can. 
And God, I know that the only way that we can do this is if we take serious, if we take serious this command to fight sin. Because sin is the opposite of you. You are holy, you are good, you are just, and you are right. God, I pray that as we leave here, that we are emboldened, we are encouraged, because we know that we are empowered. And that the victory is ours. And the victory is ours because of your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.